Um, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 down through 11. Uh, if you want to go into those, um, one of the beauties of the Word of God is how relevant it is um, and how God providentially uses that word in your life. Um, whenever you read the Word of God, whether you read it publicly in corporate worship or through your regular reading, which I hope that you do in some way um, during the week, after you read a passage of Scripture, you shouldn't just ask, what did it mean to the original hearers? Or ask, what does it mean in general? But you should ask yourself, why does God want me to read this now? What, what about my life right now did God want me sovereignly and providentially to read this text because we believe that God is ordering all things to his glory. And if God has put this, the text of his holy and inerrant word in front of you, there's a reason for that. Um, and so that's one of the questions you should ask. And one of the things that we do as a congregation, which is an old practice to help keep ourselves accountable to preaching the whole counsel of God as it all points to Jesus, is we preach something in Latin that's called Lectio Continua, which means um, con a continual lectionary or continuing to preach through books of the Bible. Um, and so I don't come up each Sunday and say, this is what I feel like preaching. Or this is the passage that I can do just the best sermon that I ever think that I could preach on and people will think that I'm a great preacher if I preach on this text. We just go straight through books of the Bible and we trust God that those books of the Bible and the passages that we're on when we preach them are going to be applicable to the people to whom we're preaching. And you see things like that. And so we come to a passage this morning where Paul is talking about the congregation at Corinth and he's telling them that different things are amiss in their culture. Um, Corinth was known to be a place that was a pretty ugly and, and nasty city. Um, some ways in terms of injustice, which we just saw last week, um, he was saying, listen, don't go to the secular courts if you're at odds in a civil offense with a brother or sister in Christ because you know that the courts are known to be um, folks who take bribes and being unjust and the judges are not just judges. Why wouldn't you rather take that case to your brothers and sisters in your local church congregation, um, people who are under the word of God and who are growing in godliness through the Holy Spirit? And it was also known to be a culture that was very sexually explicit and sexually immoral. And so what you have is the Apostle Paul speaking to this church and encouraging this church that was being swayed by the cultural narrative of what is true and good rather than submitting themselves to the word of God as to what is true and good. And of course, we see those same things going on now. And so, you know, unless you, you have your head in a hole and you don't look at the print newspaper or online or anything, I think you're pretty aware, probably more aware than you've ever been on what's going on in culture and the different ways and a whole different categories of how our culture is walking contrary to the word of God. And one of the things that God calls us to as a local church is to live our lives according to his law, not to earn salvation, but because we already have earned salvation. And so we see a very real moral change in the community of faith. And that we've seen is one of the winsome things that attracts people to the church. Um, Professor Dr. Um, Hurtado wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, which is a, an interesting book if you want to pick it up. It's kind of a short read. He's a church historian, and he charted how it was that the church went from being 11 hiding disciples to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire in about 400 or so years. You know, how, 
how did that happen? That, that's pretty remarkable. And one, one of the things that he noted was not that they went out and said, okay, this is God's truth, but you know, it's really flexible. I'm sure we can find ways that this truth could accommodate to things that you already believe. And you, know, you can kind of keep living your life and God just loves everyone and everything and everything's fine with him. Instead, they were a people who had fallen under the amazing mercy of Jesus. They had received forgiveness of their sins, and that forgiveness led them to live changed lives with one another. That their, their marriages were different. That the way they engaged in commerce was different. The way that they told truth or didn't tell truth were different. Within these little bodies of faith, and the Roman Empire looking in on that little body of faith said, that's really attractive. What is up with this crazy group of people that call them Christians? And people who were outside of the community of faith, who experienced and felt the slavery of sin, whether it was the slavery of greed or the slavery of lies or the slavery of sexual sin, when they came to the end of themselves and asked questions like, is there some place that I can find forgiveness with God and freedom from these sins that plague me? They looked in on these local churches and found them living morally transformed lives, and it attracted um, unconverted Romans and Greeks and everywhere the gospel went to them. And Dr. Hurtado charts that this different group, different because what they believed of how you're made righteous with God, but also different in how they decided to live their lives based on the Word of God, was very missional. It was very attractive. It led to church growth, not because the church decided to say, sure, you can do whatever you want with the Word of God and the truth of God, but because they stood on the Word of God and the truth of God as the Word and truth of God, as they extolled the mercy of God and lived transformed lives. And so in this particular passage... Paul is looking at the Corinthian church and saying, from what I've heard from both Chloe's house, these verbal reports, and also from the letter that I've gotten, your local congregation is not marked by moral transformation. If there are people in Corinth who are saying, I feel the slavery of sexual sin, where can I go to find forgiveness and freedom from sexual sin? They're not going to say the church of Christ in Corinth because you're not living, living lives that are sexually, sexually different. If they find people who are enslaved to greed in the more and more and more of commercialization, and they say, where can I go to find forgiveness and find the kind of heart transformation that frees me from the slavery of things, they didn't see the Corinth church as a place for that because the Corinthian church was living just like the Corinthian culture was. And so Paul is bringing correction to them He's using the previous passage where he talked about unjust judges to talk about unjustness and unrighteousness and what marks a particular church. And so we're going to look at, he gives this list of ten sins. This isn't the only list of ten sins. They actually fall into different categories. And so we have four sexual sins. We have four sins related to possessions. We have one sin of idolatry, we might say a sin of worship. And another sin related to how we speak, and it's the word revilers, probably, 
um, and, and your particular translation. Um, all of those are mentioned side by side without any equivocation that any one of them are less or greater than the others. But in the current climate that we're talking about, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about sexual sin and how the Lord God sets boundaries for what constitutes morality sexually and how a sexually broken and sinful world can find freedom in Jesus. I mean, if, if we go and say to the, 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 the watching world, hey, if you feel the bondage of sexual sin and we have the answer to that, people are going to be beating down our doors. And yet Christians in these days found, find themselves saying all kinds of goofy stuff about what God thinks about sexuality. And so we need to come to the Corinthian church, to this passage that God decided that we were going to um, look at just as we preach the regular books of the Bible, as it informs us not only for what it looks like for us to pursue holiness, but for us to preach God's gospel um, to the watching world that has all kinds of questions, especially in the area of human sexuality. So that's where we're headed um, this morning, and um, I will pray for us, um, and then we'll read God's word. Lord, thank you for your word, which is true in every part. Um, doesn't have any errors in it, was exactly what you wanted the church of Corinth to hear and is exactly what you want us to hear. And so would you help us through your Holy Spirit as we study your word together as a local church, that you would transform us by your grace, that you would lead us out to share it with others, that we would see revival in our days because we are audibly and loudly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, which is what this whole book is about. And so we pray in his name. Amen. So I'll read to us God's word from 1 Corinthians 6, um, 9 through 11, and then we'll work our way through it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is the word of our God. This is one of my, my favorite passages um, in all of the Bible. It gives me such hope. I often think what it would have been like to sit in the Corinthian congregation and to hear this letter from Paul and to hear that letter being read and to look around one another and to say, yes, this, this describes us. The such were some of yous. We would look around and say, yes, this, that was you. But look what God's done in your life. What God has, God has changed and how God has, has, has bought back the years that the locusts would have eaten, to quote from um, one of the minor prophets. But first we have to start with a very clear truth that Christians are marked by their approval of and practice of biblical morality. What, what marks us, how you can tell a Christian, is their approval of and their practice of biblical morality. We do not practice biblical morality in order to be saved. We have been saved by Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, his death on our behalf, his being raised to new life so that we are saved by his work alone and by the Holy Spirit's work of producing faith in us. But after being saved by faith alone through the grace of God, we are saved to a new life that is marked by the law of God. So we are saved from the condemnation of the law of God, but we are not saved 
by from obeying the law of God. So much so that if I were to tell, if I were to ask you the question, do a Bible quiz and say, what is the book of Romans about? Um, you might know if you've, you've read the book of Romans, you might say, the book of Romans is, God, is Paul's complete, most robust, systematic theology laying out that we are saved by grace alone, not according to our works. Where if we look at Paul actually in chapter 1 and chapter 16, saying what he's after in the book of Romans and also in his mystery, in, in his ministry, he says, I am about bringing about the obedience of faith. That that was Paul's aim. He preached a gospel of free grace with the result that those who have been transformed by God would walk in an obedience that shows that they have been changed. And so we start not just that we practice biblical morality and pursue a true holiness, which the author of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the new heavens and new earth, no one will see salvation, but specifically we approve of it. We believe that God has very clearly given us his word and that his word is operative from Genesis to Revelation in all of our lives. He intends us to not be above it, that we would look at the word and say, well, I think this is right and this is wrong and ooh, I really like this passage and you know what, that's Leviticus. I really don't like Leviticus. We're going to skip that. It isn't beside the word of God that somehow we come alongside and we say, well, I'll give a little, you give a little, we'll do a compromise. I really like, you know, I'm going to try to be loving. You don't confront me with my sin and we're going to have a good relationship. We sit under the word of God. The word of God is our authority in every part. When we are at odds with the word of God, we're wrong every time. When we're odds with the Word of God, isn't like, oh, I wonder, is God wrong or am I wrong? We are under the Word of God. When we are at odds with the Word of God and we find ourselves having difficulty with it, the problem is not God and that He did not see the particular circumstance or age that we would be in. And if He did, He would have written it differently. It's because we, in our sin and blindness, want to make this book to be something that affirms all of the positions we like and denies all of the positions that we don't like. And that is not biblical godliness, that's idolatry. That is making God after our own opinions and what we want to be true. And so we read this book as those who are under it, believing that God has written it for us to be authoritative and to govern all of human life forever because it is an accurate representation of who he is and of his character. And so if you go through the Ten Commandments, it isn't just that these are things that God would like us to do. It isn't just these are things that God commands us to do. It's that these are things who mark who God is. It's at the heart of his character. His name, his worship, his image, authority, marriage, truthfulness, not stealing, being content. Those are all aspects of his character. And so the law of God isn't first commandments. It's a declaration of his character. So to defend the law of God is first defending God, not just what he said we're to do. To give you an example, so many Christians would not be able to sit on a jury where God presided. Let's say that God is bringing a judgment. He wants to judge a 
particular sin that he has said, sin and wrong, and getting towards that judgment and that court case, there is jury selection. And you're sitting in jury selection. And whoever's you know, going through the jury selection, the prosecutor and the defense attorney, and they're asking the jurors different questions to see whether or not they are fit to sit on a jury. And, and the hope is that the whole citizenry of a local area would be fit to serve on a jury. But there are some really crazy, wacky people that you just don't want to be on a jury. I mean, there are people that you interact with every day, and you're like, I really hope he doesn't end up on a jury, because that's a really crazy guy. And so imagine you sitting in a jury, and the, the, whoever's doing jury selection says, what do you think about God's law against stealing? And you say, oh, I'm glad you asked. No, I'm, I believe that God is against stealing. Yeah, I would never steal, and I think that stealing is wrong. But I, I, I would never be able to tell someone else that stealing was wrong. What do you think? Would you be able to sit on the jury of God? Of course not. Prosecutor and defender say, no, we don't want this person in there. What, you have a personal belief that that's true, but you're not willing to uphold the laws of the land? Like, of course not. You are an unfit juror. That's what it means to sit under the word of God, is to say, no, I, I believe that because it is the law of God, and he is not just the king of my heart, as if his rule and reign stops at the boundaries of my physical flesh or my own thoughts. He is the king and ruler of all the world. And so if you ask me, what does God say against stealing? Don't steal. I don't think God wants me to steal. I don't think he wants you to steal. I think stealing is always wrong because of who my God is and what he has said. And God wants us as Christians to so sit under his law that we, all of us, could sit in the courtroom to be jurors. Even as we looked at last week, that we, as the saints of God, will help Jesus in the judgment at the end of all days. It says the saints will join Christ in the judgment. Imagine Christ saying, that is sin, and that falls under the judge judgment of God. And his saints are back there saying, I don't know, Jesus. Um, I, I mean, I would never do that, but I, I mean... I don't think you can say that to them. I mean, who are you to say that that applies to them? I mean, can you imagine saying that to King Jesus and the great judgment? No, he's, he is our king. He's God. He's the one who decides. And it's not like he said, hey, 10-page Bible, figure the rest out. I'm sure you'll do fine. Like over thousands of years, a thorough Bible without any errors, speaking to every kind of context and circumstance that we could find ourselves in, no matter what happens in the future because we believe that God is sovereign and he knows what will happen. 2017, he's not like, oh no, we've got North Korean dictators with bombs and all this. I mean, her, I, I just, I didn't prepare for any of this. Like he's our God. And he has so made the word of God to, to be told and extolled and protected and printed and published and preached that his word is true wherever it is. And so we as Christians aren't asked, what do you think is true or false? It doesn't matter what we think is true or false. It matters what God thinks is true or false. What Christians are called in the first book of Acts um, are marturas, where you get the word martyr from. Um, but what it was before it was martyred and was used in that way, which was you know, something that all of a sudden started happening to Christians because they're doing what I'm telling you about right now, it word was 
witness. Your witness. So if somebody asks you what is true or false, you're like, well, God's my king. He's the king of the whole world. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you what's true or false. Not because I've done an exhaustive philosophical study and I've decided what the judiciary of my own personal life should look like, but because I'm under God's word and law, I'm a witness to what he says is true. God isn't taking a poll of all of the opinions on Facebook and saying, that sounds good. He's saying, I have said what is true in my word because I am loving and I am true and I am just and I am gracious and I have already done that. And so Christians have a chance not to say, well, I don't know. If you don't know, go to the word of God and figure out what it says and then be bold enough to say it. God expects Christians to be able to sit in the jury of God and it is unfortunate today that so many Christians, especially those who call themselves preachers and teachers of God's word, are unfit jurors in the courtroom of God because they are unwilling to say, this is what God's word says in every part. But it's also that we practice God's word. We have to make sure that we don't get the gospel wrong. The gospel isn't, you are saved by faith, do whatever you want. The gospel is you are saved by faith and are now purchased to be God's very own. There's this actually interesting passage in the latter part of Romans 6 where the Apostle Paul flips the narrative and he's going through talking about how awful sin is and he gets down into the awfulness of sin and he says, tell me about your life when you were free to sin. Think about your life. If, if you are free to do every sin, but you are not free to do anything righteous. Paul's saying, tell me about that freedom. Does that sound good to you? What, what if you were able to do every sin, but nothing righteous? Does that sound like a good life, a fun life, a happy life, the kind of life that, that you would want to marry someone who did that? And then Paul said, what? The beauty of the gospel is that now you are a slave to righteousness. And that the slavery of God, his saying, I'm going to put the shackles of grace on you. I am going to inhibit the progress of sin. I'm going to bring the restorative and renovative work of the gospel of grace and make you new and desire more holy things and live a more holy life. That he is enslaving us to gospel grace and obedience of faith. Who would not want to live in a prison like that? God's saying, let me enslave you to millions and millions of dollars. Let me enslave you to mansions of glory. Let me enslave you to delight. Let me enslave you to celebration. Let me enslave you to promises. Let me enslave you to hope. Let me enslave you to sexual purity. Let me enslave you to contentedness. We would say, yes. If that's what slavery to God looks like, that's what I want. And so when we come back to the Corinthian congregation, we have to ask ourselves the question, are these a people who have approved of what God has said and are walking in holiness? And he goes through a list of things. We've, we've gone through our particular list. He goes through possessions. You know, don't be a swindler. Don't be a greedy. Don't be a thief. He goes through idolatry. You know, 
don't worship false idols. He goes to words, don't be a reviler. Now, those are all things that we normally would say are not good things. Like, I think our culture at large say that is not good things. But then he goes to set limits and boundaries as to what is biblical sexuality. We have to pay attention here. One of the, he uses four words. Um, you probably see three in your Bible, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, one of the words is sexual immorality in general. Um, the word for that is pornea. Um, that Greek word is the word that we get pornography from. And that word pornea is what we would call a junk drawer term. It's a term that describes a broad range of practices. Anything outside of heterosexual married sex is pornea. So it's not like, okay, here are the three things. If you avoid those, you're sexually pure. The way the Bible understands it is anything outside of heterosexual married sexual intimacy is sexual sin. But he goes on from that and he uses another word, morkia, and that word actually means adultery. And so he says adultery is sin too. And then he talks about homosexuality. And he says homosexuality is also a sin within the realm of sexuality that God says this is sin for which people will be condemned to hell. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And one of the things people say these days around the topic of homosexuality is, well, it's kind of general and we can kind of figure out, well, this is really what they were talking about. It wasn't precise. And here's where we get to the footnote in your Bible. If you come to this particular passage, I know we have folks of all ages, so I'll speak generally. You can read the footnote on that text. It uses one word to describe two practices. And so it describes homosexuality in general here, lumping two together. But the two words that Paul uses is both the active and passive participants in homosexual acts. So the question becomes, is the Bible precise about sexual sin, or is it general? We can just all kind of figure it out. And we can go to this passage, and you can look at the footnote in your Bible and say, Paul's specific and precise. Much less, when we look back in those days, it's not like it was the lily-white days of the Greco-Roman Empire. Like, the Greco-Roman Empire was worse than what we're currently in. I mean, I, I would say you can read about it, but I don't want you to read about it. It's really gross, awful stuff that was going on in those days. I mean, you can look up pederasty and what pederasty was and how that, com that practice was common back in those days and what an awful, heinous sin pederasty is. And so when we look at this list of sins, we look at, at Paul being specific about sexual sin, about homosexual sin, as well as other sins like greed, about adultery, about idolatry. And he says very specifically... People who practice these things, who approve of these things, will not be in heaven. So it, Christians have not come up with this mean version of God, where God's really nice and loving, and we've made him into what culture would say is a mean, a mean God. God is a just God. People who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom that is marked by the children of God. We believe in a very real hell that very real people will populate and the practices that those very real people will be judged for are listed here in the Bible. And so we don't need to say, I don't know what the Bible says. The Bible's very specific, which is why we are so missional and are so evangelistic. We believe people that we know right now are under the wrath and curse of God and we long to share with them the gospel of God that they, like us, 
have the opportunity to repent of their sins, receive the forgiveness and freedom of God, and walk in a transformed new life. We long for that. If this passage isn't true, then we shouldn't do any evangelism. Everything just becomes social action. Let's alleviate the poor. It doesn't matter about those things. I mean, we don't need to tell anybody about hell or condemnation or sin. I'm sure they're fine. If you spend time with anyone who's enslaved to sin, they're not fine. They're dying on the inside, and they know it, and they're looking for hope. They don't think there is any, and that's why Paul wanted the church at Corinth to be different because of what God had done already in their life. And so it, this passage gets better and better. And so um, very clear declaration that Christians are marked by morally changed lives, that they approve of biblical morality and they seek to practice it in their lives. Now, why? Because God has changed them. Do you see what he says next? They are the ones who have been washed. They are the ones who have been sanctified. They are the ones who have been justified. Paul is saying to the, the Corinthian congregation, do you not realize what God has done for you? If you realize what God has done for you, you would stand more boldly for these things and you would live a life of holiness and moral transformation because our God is a God that changes people. Our God is not a God who slides the get-out-of-hell-free card across the table and says, good luck, I know you'll be fine. Our God's the God who does not, he does not affirm sin. He brings transformation and cure for sin. You know, imagine for somebody who comes into the doctor's office with cancer and the doctor just affirms them in their cancer. Yes, you have cancer. You just need to embrace the fact that you are someone who has cancer and go and live a happy life as someone who has cancer. That's malpractice. And preaching like that is malpractice. Sin will kill you. Sin places you at odds with an eternal God of just wrath who will condemn those whose faith is not in Christ. But the good news is there are people who were the such for some of you. Again, like I can just imagine someone sitting on the row right there and Paul says, but you know, he goes to this list homosexual, adulterer, pornographer, greedy, thief, idolater. And Paul says, such were some of you. Can you imagine them saying, yeah, yeah, that was, I gotta pick a name that's on here. That was, that was Eddie. You know, you, we, we know Eddie. He was a homosexual. But that's not who he is now. He, he was washed. He was sanctified. He was justified. Yeah, we, we know Richard. There's not a Richard here. Richard was a thief. He was known for his practices. I mean, he went to jail for a white-collar crime, for stealing from the elderly. And look, he, he's here now. He's here in our midst, and he's not a thief anymore. Look at the great work that our God has done. The salvation that Jesus purchased at the Christ, the perfect resume of righteousness, he applied to Eddie, and he applied to Richard, and they are different people, and those different people are now a part of this thing called the local church. We, we know that Eddie and Richard still sin. It's not that they're sinless. It's that they've been changed in their posture towards sin and their practice of sin. 
a Christian may commit sexual sin. But when they commit sexual sin, they hate it. And they declare it to be an offense towards mighty, the Almighty God that required the bloody death of the second person of the Trinity in order to save them from it. And they forsake it as something they never again want to do. And they seek accountability and new life within a Christian community so that they can, as much as possible in this life, approximate a hatred of sin and an avoidance of sin and a love for holiness that marks the heavens that we're all shooting for been washed, which is very specifically a removal of guilt and sin. They've been sanctified. Sanctification is being set apart for holy uses. They've been justified, which is God's external declaration of righteousness in Jesus, where God looks at someone apart from what they've done and decides to declare them righteous, to impute to them a righteousness that is not their own, but is earned by Jesus Christ and that was what was true of the Christians at Corinth, and Paul expected them to act like it. Because them acting like it glorified the God that they worshipped. If you refuse to live a life of moral change, not only do I doubt your salvation, if you refuse to approve of what God approves of and hate what God hates. Not only do I doubt your salvation, but you are blaspheming God. He did not save you to love sin. He saved you to love righteousness and holiness and to say, I have not changed myself, but God changes me. And that transformation is in the name of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I am a testament of a changed life, not a sinless, perfect life. I will sin until the day that Jesus comes back or he stops my heart bleeding from beating. And I will be in the new heavens, finally sinless. Till that day, I will sin. But God is at the work of transforming me and that my life will be marked by change change and growth and holiness as a testament to the greatness of my God. And unchanged people who wink at sin do no service of worship to their God. But a people who can say, I have been saved from gross sin. Look what God has done in my life. Look at what he is doing in my life. Look what he saved me from. Look at what a different person I am. Those are people who extol the greatness of their God who washes, who sanctifies, who justifies. And so we're a group of such for some of you. I won't say your sins. I won't go through the list of my sins. But all of us are the group of such for some of you. None of us came in as like, yeah, I was, I was pretty close to the top and just, you know, God had to provide a little effort to tip me over the edge. Like, pretty good person. There was that little thing back in 78 that went wrong, but I mean, we just don't think about that. And, you know, God's, God's taking care of that. Is that we come as enemies to God's throne and that God turns enemies into children. And because he makes us children, we are, as this text says, the inheritors. God is our father, and so we inherit the kingdom. You know, maybe you've known people who adopted children from third world countries and they take them in their filth and malnourishment and they bring them into their own homes and they call them their own. Those children have been washed. Those children have been set apart in a new home. And those children have been declared to be adopted. 
If you have a group of children and you say, oh, those children have been adopted, and they're in a third world country, and they're being malnourished, and they don't know who their dad is, and they're in the midst of the slums, we would say, what kind of adoption is that? So for God to say, I'm going to wash you, I'm going to set you apart, and I'm going to call you son, daughter, my very own. That's an amazing adoption, an amazing change. And it is out of that that we live. And the beauty that we see in this particular passage is um, we conclude is that this salvation is through our God alone, it's through the triune God. There aren't a bunch of roads to God. Actually, there are a lot of roads to God. Everybody will meet God. Every single person will meet God. It just depends on what the conversation will go like when you get there. And there's only one way to God that leads to God giving approval based on his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, and that's through our triune God. And so you see the Trinity, Christian gospel, functioning in this passage. So the inheritors of the kingdom of God, what do we inherit? Well, if we're inheriting a kingdom of God, he must be God our Father. The one who God has saved us to cry out, Abba, Daddy. Only Christians can call God their Father, their Daddy. And in what name are we saved? Do you see what it says? We're saved in the name of Jesus. We already prayed as we prayed through the third commandment. The name of Jesus isn't just this magic spell. It is the declaration of who he is and what he's done. It is the character of Christ, his person and his work, his doing and his dying. We are saved through the finished work of Jesus alone. How does it happen? By the Holy Spirit. The last thing that verse 11 says, by the Holy Spirit. So as Christians... God, our Father, through the finished work of Jesus, through the application of it through the Holy Spirit, changes us to be new people, to walk in a newness of life that shows what God has done and shines as an attractive gospel witness to the broken and those who are searching for hope and darkness and serves as the stench of death who are opposed to God's gospel. So life smells like death to those who are in death. Life smells like life to those who God's making alive. And so a bold proclamation of the gospel will always meet resistance in the culture, and it should. And that's the beautiful work of what our God's done. The such were some of you who've been saved. And so the question is this, and I just end here. Um, I was, was also going to talk about if, if you're not seeing gospel change in your life, um, what should you do about that? Um, I'll, I'll write a, a thing for our congregation on that and send that out to you um, as a, if that's your question. Um, th- this, this is what I would hope. I hope that all of you have friends who are in the slavery of sin. If you don't, go make one. It's not like there are two of them in Culpeper. Like lots of people in the slavery of sin who live within 100 yards of your home, who maybe have cubicles within 12 yards of your desk, Make friends with people in the slavery of sin and share your faith with them. And the hope would be this. If your friends who are not yet Christians, who are in the slavery of sin, come to the point of saying, my life is empty. I've looked at the Bible and I think I'm at odds with God. I feel and see the wreckage and carnage of my sin in my life and in the life of my family, and I can't stop. Is there hope for someone like me? Do I know anyone in my life 
who could tell me how I could have hope and change, my hope would be that they would say you. Because as a Christian, you are declaring not that you have cleaned your life up, but that you serve a God who cleans lives up through the grace of Jesus. And that's attractive. And so I, I don't want them to say, well, I know a lot of people who say my life's just fine and that I've just made a life choice and they've made a different life choice, but that's not what I feel on the inside. Is there anybody different who proclaims a bold, loving, gracious truth and a way to be saved, to find newness of life, and that they're walking in it? That's the attractiveness of the gospel. A wishy-washy Christianity is nothing. Doesn't need a cross, doesn't need a God, doesn't need a judge. And so who, who's, who is in your life who you could share the gospel with when they reach that point of wondering, is there anyone who's being changed? That's what Paul's driving at here in this passage. Let me pray for us. Let's sing the songs of the changed and eat the meal of the changed. Father, thank you for this, your word, which is true in every part. Thank you for the gospel of grace that saves us from our sins. We love you, Lord God. Make us true proclaimers of your truth and bold proclaimers of your grace as we walk out in life with one another. We pray in Christ. Amen.